Hello, and welcome to the Queen's Observatory Fast Radio Bursts. I am Connor Stone, here with my co-host, Nikhil Aurora. It is our mission to bring exciting space news hot off the telescope and into your ears. One way or another, the Queen's Observatory has continued its practice of sharing the wonders of the universe since 1857. Thank you for joining us in this long-running tradition. Here at Fast Radio Bursts, we will answer your questions, interview astronomers, and dive deep into breaking research. From low Earth orbit to the clouds of Venus, from Betelgeuse to colliding black holes, it's a big universe to talk about, so let's get started. Uh, welcome back to the Fast Radio Bursts. Here with me today is Alan Goodman. Hello, Alan. Hey, Connor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, doing lovely, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. So I'm going to uh, start off with a little introduction for our listeners. Alan Goodman comes to us, well, he's still with us. He did his undergraduate studies in engineering physics here at Queen's University, and now he is on his way to finishing his master's here at Queen's University. In that time, he's been all over the place, Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics visiting fellow. He's been on the Queen's Space Engineering team and the director of the board for the Queen's Engineering Society. Oh, and perhaps most prestigious of all, he gave a uh, talk at the Queen's Observatory Open House not too long ago. It was the, it was the honor of a lifetime. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'm sure it was. So, Alan, you have some pretty remarkable research to tell us about. A, a title that really catches the eye, Dark Matter Destroyer of Worlds. Uh, but of course, before we get into that, I think we should do a little bit of background about dark mm. matter. That, that seems fair. That seems appropriate. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about dark matter. What, what is dark matter just uh, for someone who is uninitiated? So the, the short answer uh, is that nobody knows specifically what dark matter is. Uh, your guess on that one is uh, as good as mine. Uh, the longer answer gets a little more complicated. Um, well, I think your guess is more entertaining than mine. So. Well, yeah, the, 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 the guesses in this talk will hopefully be uh, at least a little entertaining. Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of listeners. Uh, the, the idea of dark matter is, uh, it, it comes, there's, there's a lot of evidence for uh, something existing that we would call dark matter. Uh, but my favorite type of evidence, and, and, and the one that's probably the easiest to explain, uh, comes from looking at galaxies. So galaxies, uh, it, by and large, are just these huge disks in the sky, and they're all rotating about their center. Um, and uh, one, one, you know, it's hard to explain the forces at play uh, in, in a galaxy's rotation, but one of the, the, the metaphors that seems to do the trick uh, is uh, everybody has seen uh, you know, videos, or perhaps they've done this themselves, of parents picking up their children by the arms and spinning them around. Uh, and when they do this, the, the kids' legs sort of fly out from underneath them and they're, they're sort of horizontal. Uh, it seems like a really great time. I wish I was still very small because I feel like I would enjoy that. Uh, but the, 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 it might, you might not have thought about this uh, before, but it's kind of weird that doing that causes the, the kids' legs to fly out from underneath them as it does. Uh, and cause them to go horizontal. <clears throat> uh, and the reason for that is 
Uh, when you spin around in a circle, uh, there's this thing called the centrifugal force, which is just a word, and you can forget it immediately. But basically what it means is that when, when something is, is spun around, uh, it experiences a force that wants it to fly away from the center of its rotation, in this case, uh, the parent. Uh, and the same thing is true uh, in a galaxy. So as the stars and the planets rotate about the center of the galaxy, uh, this rotation creates this sort of force, and this force is telling these bodies, these stars and planets, that they want to fly away from the center of the galaxy. Uh, but uh, as we can all see, uh, just by looking up at the sky, uh, the stars and the planets have not flown away from the center of the galaxy. They remain bound uh, together in this cluster. Uh, and the thing that's holding them together uh, is gravity, the thing that's preventing this force from throwing all these uh, stars and planets out into space is gravity that's holding the galaxy together. And this might be pretty intuitive, thankfully, uh, but the faster something is spinning, uh, the, the harder you need to hold on to it, uh, otherwise it'll go flying off. Uh, that's why if you spin a kid really slowly, nothing really happens. And it's only when you start spinning them really fast that they start you know, flying horizontally. Uh, and so uh, by looking at a galaxy, by looking at how fast these stars and planets are rotating about the center of the galaxy, we can figure out uh, how much of a force there is that's trying to push them away. Are you, are, are you following me so far? Have I, have I, have I, have I so far done an okay job uh, uh, explaining this one? <laughs> yep, I'm following. We've got okay, that's what the I like galaxy to hear. trying to fling itself apart, but the gravity holding it together. It's exactly right. Yeah, the gravity the gravity's just doing its part. Uh, so uh, by looking at a galaxy, we have uh, pretty sophisticated instruments now, and I'm, you know all about this as a bona fide astronomer, unlike <laughs> myself, who is at best a fake astronomer. Uh, we can measure the speed of these stars uh, in this galaxy and how fast they're rotating. And in other galaxies as well, we've, we've done this sort of calculation on uh, uh, so many galaxies, I, I couldn't even express the number in a, in a coherent way, I'm sure. I'd uh, say it's probably in the tens to hundreds of thousands. Oh, that's, we, we got to step up our game. I was hoping for more than that. That's uh, a lot of galaxies. <laughs> I, I feel like we could do better. In the grand scheme of things, disappointing. Uh, so <laughs> we, we've, we've, measured, we've measured these speeds, and we can also measure how heavy these galaxies are just by sort of looking at them. We can, we can see stuff in this galaxy and based on how much stuff we see we can get a pretty good estimate of how heavy these galaxies should be and of course uh, the weight of the galaxy how heavy it is uh, determines how much gravity there is uh, but there's a problem or there was a problem depending on who you ask there still is a problem and that's that the uh, the the speed of these stars as they rotate in this galaxy seems to be too fast for the mass of the galaxy so what this means is that by our calculations, uh, the gravity of basically every single galaxy that we can see is, uh, is, is too little to be containing stars that are moving this fast. The, the force that would want these stars rotating to fly off into space should be too great for the gravity of the galaxy to contain them. And to, to give people some reference, um, our solar system is moving around our galaxy at roughly 200 kilometers per second. Yeah, we're, so we're dealing with huge a, speeds here. A bullet is roughly around one kilometer per second. So yeah, that gives you a sense of scale for the forces involved here. Yeah, it's, it, the, the human mind uh, has trouble 
coming to terms with the, the forces and speeds that you start thinking about at astronomical scales. Uh, but, it, it, you know, without the dark matter, it, we would calculate that the, the sun's orbital velocity should be much, much less. Or, uh, put another way, uh, the sun, without this extra mass in the galaxy that we can't see, would fly off into space uh, because the, the, this centrifugal force, the, the force that's caused by spinning around quickly, would be so great that uh, gravity just wouldn't be able to contain it. And astronomers observe this trend in just about every galaxy. So the, the question then becomes, uh, how is this possible? Have we completely flubbed our calculations of gravity? Do we not understand what's going on at all? Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. We, we've made some pretty impressively uh, accurate calculations. So the conclusion that people came to was that uh, the most likely scenario is that there's this missing mass. Uh, some say a particle, uh, some would say uh, a bunch of uh, basically invisible uh, massive stellar bodies that are flying around in just about every galaxy we can see, uh, but they're invisible, so we can't actually see them directly. The only thing that we can see is this sort of uh, uh, relic, this, this gravitational effect that they, that they uh, create based on their mass. Uh, and that missing mass, the, the stuff that we can't see that's creating this gravitational discrepancy is what we call dark matter. Uh, and uh, I should also say that, you know, while this is my favorite sort of uh, uh, piece of evidence for the existence of dark matter, there are plenty of other um, calculations that different physicists have done that all seem to converge around the same answer, which is that there should be some sort of uh, uh, invisible dark matter that exists in the universe. And they all seem to agree as well uh, on how much of this stuff there should be. So the, the agreed upon value that all of this evidence seems to be pointing to is that there's about four or five times as much dark matter by mass in the universe as there is regular matter. And I should be specific, when I say regular matter, I mean uh, everything that we've seen and understand. So uh, everything that makes up you and me, uh, the sky, the earth, the trees, the sun, everything in the universe that's on the periodic table or in the standard model of particle physics, all of that only makes up about a quarter or a fifth of the mass that we observe in the universe. And the rest of it should be this dark matter. Uh, and so there's a lot of this stuff flying around in every galaxy. So uh, to me and to other dark matter physicists, it's pretty frustrating uh, that we, we don't understand what most of the stuff is in the universe. But that's the, that's the, the, the crux of dark matter. It's sort of invisible particles uh, that are everywhere in the universe that we uh, have only seen based on the fact that they have mass. Yeah, and uh, as well as galaxies, there's, there's lots of other larger scales that we see the effects of dark matter. For example, like clusters of galaxies that just orbit each other and looking at the cosmic microwave background of the universe, all of yeah, these different a, scales. Yeah, they all, and they all, they all seem to converge around the same answer, which of, of you know, dark matter, which I think is uh, quite beautiful. Uh, it really shows that, you know, even though we don't understand what's going on in the universe, uh, we seem to have a good way of measuring it and modeling <laughs> it. Uh, so that's reassuring it, uh, at least. <laughs> So there's a missing X, but everyone agrees roughly on the X. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> there are there are people I should say that 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 um, propose models that don't require dark matter. But uh, the 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 predominant thinking among scientists at the moment is that that they, there is probably some dark matter. Uh, I think this is also a good segue to my next question, which is uh, now that now that we've sort of established 
that dark matter is out there. Could you give us a sense of what sort of ideas there are out there for what this particle could be? Who are your competitors? Who are my, my competitors? So I'll, I'll start by saying, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it competitors. So uh, as, as dark matter physicists all have these sort of favorite models, what, what they think dark matter is going to be, how heavy they think it's going to be, how interactive they think it's going to be. Uh, but uh, for, for my part, uh, I, I'm, I'm more or less of the opinion that we, we have no idea. Uh, the dark matter could be extremely light or it could be extremely heavy. Uh, and both of these are, are, are just as well uh, as possible as the other. Uh, so uh, with, that, with that in mind, there are some popular uh, dark matter models. Uh, the most uh, uh, popular one, uh, at least in terms of its name, is called a WIMP, um, which stands for Weakly Interactive Massive Particle. Uh, and uh, WIMPs are basically uh, somewhat light, so that they should be around the mass of sort of, a, of an oxygen atom, uh, uh, more or less. Uh, and one of the, the standard sort of uh, features of them is that they're very weakly interacting. So uh, I, I'm not sure if you have uh, any of the Snow Lab people on this podcast. No, you're the first. Oh, so I get to uh, I get to give the uh, the introduction to to Snow Lab, despite the fact that I don't uh, I don't work on an experiment there. <laughs> Excellent. So <laughs> there are um, there are a bunch of experiments, and what they do is they go very very deep underground, uh, and and to and and they do this to to look for dark matter. And and the reason that you would want to go really really deep underground to look for these wimps uh, is that. Um, up here on the surface, there's a lot of particles just sort of flying around. There's uh, muons and and uh, and uh, you know radio waves and uh, everything that that uh, particle physicists like to measure uh, is all uh, flying around all the time. Uh, and if you're looking for these weakly interactive particles, meaning that part they're, they're particles that wouldn't uh, interact with anything very often. Uh, if you try to put a detector to look for these sorts of particles up on the surface of the Earth, you're going to be measuring all of these uh, other particles, and it's going to be hard to discern uh, between what would be a dark matter particle and what would be these uh, random background particles, as they're called. Uh, so what some experimentalists do is they go deep, deep underground, about two kilometers underground, and by doing so, uh, they filter out all of this, all of this noise, all of these other particles, because these other particles uh, very rarely are able to penetrate through two kilometers of rock. If you're looking for wimps, though, because they very rarely interact with anything, uh, by moving through this two kilometers of rock, uh, they won't bump into very much material, and they'll still be moving at the same speed as they were uh, when they entered. And so if one of these particles enters the detector, the hope is, uh, that it can uh, have enough energy to be detected. Uh, so there are many, many experiments that are currently deep underground looking for these uh, weakly interactive massive particles. Uh, but so far, none of them have found anything. Uh, so either dark matter is even more weakly interactive uh, than these experiments are able to measure, or it's something else entirely. Uh, so that's the, 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 the favored model uh, by many people. Uh, that, that I, I'm, I'm most happy to, <laughs> to talk about. And every year that they don't detect something, you theorists get more excited with new models. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Out. So as a, as a theorist, this, uh, this is really excellent because, um, you know, as soon as, they, as soon as they find something, 
you have to really start thinking about that specific thing. But at the moment, because nobody knows what this thing is still, uh, we can speculate pretty wildly. And, you know, any wild speculation is as good a guess as any other. Uh, so that, you know, it, it, it opens up a lot more possibilities uh, in this case to think about dark matter destroying worlds. Uh, so um, with, with that, let's, let's move on to the type of dark matter that is your new favorite asymmetric dark matter asymmetric dark matter yeah and that's that's what's going to play a role um after our first break so let's let's explain what asymmetric dark matter is excellent so uh yeah asymmetric dark matter to a lot of physicists is a very uh unintuitive and strange concept but i think to the people who aren't sort of deeply immersed in dark matter physics it, it's probably a more intuitive type of dark matter so the alternative to asymmetric dark matter is, as you might expect, symmetric dark matter. And uh, what symmetric dark matter would mean uh, is that uh, it, the dark matter in the universe has equal parts dark matter and anti-dark matter, or dark antimatter. I'm not sure what the, the favorite term is. Uh, and this is contrary uh, to what we see for regular matter. Uh, again, the stuff that makes up you and me in the periodic table and, and that stuff, which is uh, there's a whole lot more matter than antimatter in the universe. Uh, and the reason why people tend to favor uh, symmetric dark matter or physicists tend to like symmetric dark matter is uh, we can come up with ways that it could be created during the Big Bang. Uh, a lot, this is uh, one of the, in my opinion, a very interesting uh, uh, gap in our knowledge is that at the moment, scientists have no idea why there is more matter, regular matter, than antimatter in the universe. We have a few theories, but we've never been able to, to truly put our finger on why that's happening. Uh, so uh, in the same vein, some people might expect that because there is more matter than antimatter, there should be more dark matter than anti-dark matter. Uh, but seems uh, fair enough to me. It seems fair enough, uh, and and that's what you would call asymmetric dark matter. This asymmetry is between the dark matter and the the anti dark matter. All right. Well, now that we know a little bit about uh, dark matter, why we think it's there, and sort of the types of models that are out there, I think we'll go for our first break, and we'll be back with dark matter destroyer of worlds. Hello, Nick here. Don't worry, I haven't gone anywhere, and I'll be back in the next episode. I'm just stopping by to let you know that the Queen's Observatory is always here to answer your space questions. You can find us on Facebook, at Queen's Observatory, all on Word, or on Twitter, at QU Observatory. If you would like to see the talks from one of our past observatory open houses, you can check out our YouTube channel by searching for Queen's Observatory and looking for our logo. We're always happy to talk about the universe. And if you ask a really big question, you might just have to do a podcast about it. That's all from me. Let's get back to Alan's amazing research. And welcome back. So Alan, now that we've covered a bit of background, I, I think it's time for you to tell us how can a planet be destroyed by dark matter? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. Uh, I'll start off by by uh, saying that in reality, uh, we have we have very rigorously mathematically proven 
uh, that uh, no plant or, or that the earth and the sun are safe from destruction by dark matter. So we will not be destroyed by dark matter anytime soon. If, well, we uh, haven't yet. We haven't yet. And we shouldn't be uh, for, you know, uh, many, many more billions of years. Uh, so no, no need to worry. No need to stress if, uh, if any popular science medium picks this up. I hope they hear this and try not to sow too much panic. Uh, but uh, that said, there are certain dark matter models that could destroy uh, planets and stars. Uh, and the way that they would do this is by accumulating uh, large amounts of dark matter mass over uh, uh, sometimes a long period of time in the core uh, of these stellar bodies. Uh, and after enough time, there would be enough of this sort of dark matter that it could gravitationally collapse into a black hole uh, that could uh, uh, suck up its its host stellar body and and uh, ultimately destroy it in the most violent manner you could possibly imagine. Oh my goodness! All right. So, so. without 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 burying the lead, that's where we're going with this. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that's a a, a useful uh, end game to consider uh, when going through uh, the the process here. All right. So we're imagining a dark matter black hole absorbing the earth that's right yes that's you you hit the nail on the head on that one okay and i have to ask uh in your in your group who came up with the name dark matter ah. destroyer of worlds so i can take i can take uh, full credit for that one uh we've been working on this project for about uh, a bit over a year and uh, my supervisor and i were walking down one of the halls at the perimeter institute i think we were actually going to play pool there's a pool table there and uh Working as i was hard, I yeah yeah this is the this is the the arduous life of a theoretical physicist uh we justify it by saying that you know pool balls scattering against each other is a very rigorous physical process so uh you know we you can it's it's a uh, it's introducing a little bit of real world physics into our theoretical days and clearly uh, it worked because you came clearly up with it the works. name exactly Dar this. yeah <laughs> we were we were walking down and I, there's a there's a a famous Oppenheimer quote that he took from uh, some Hindu scripture uh, that goes, now I am become death destroyer of worlds. And I thought it would be funny. Uh, so I just said, you know, Hey Joe, my supervisor's name. I said, Hey Joe, uh, how about we call it uh, dark matter destroyer of worlds? And he says, yeah, that's cool. Let's go with that. And over, over a year, uh, uh, none of the, none of the five people working on this project have uh, been able to come up with a better name. So uh, assuming the, the journals that we submit it to have a good sense of humor, uh, Dark Matter Destroyer of Worlds will be part of the official zeitgeist of theoretical physics. That, that's pretty amazing. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever accomplish anything better than this title in my academic career, but <laughs> doggone it, I'll try. All right. So um, the, the obvious question that leaps to one's mind is how is it that dark matter can make a black hole and is a dark matter black hole different from a regular matter black hole? Uh, so I'll start with, I'll start actually with the second part of that question, uh, which is uh, a black hole is a black hole. Uh, the only thing that's gonna change uh, uh, depending on its composition as far as we know uh, will be how it behaves based on its mass. So uh, assuming that this dark matter black hole has the same mass as a regular matter black hole, uh, the two are going to behave exactly the same. There's, there's no, once something has, has fallen into that sort of heart of darkness, uh, there's no, the, it, it doesn't matter what it was beforehand. Now it's just a black hole. 
black holes are very non-discriminating then yeah you you know you can you can sort of see that just by looking at them i mean it's the, the you can there's not much observable difference between them uh it's just sort of a a, a black hole um to answer your second question we have to go a little bit a little bit more into the weeds so uh, i talked earlier about uh these uh, experiments looking for weakly interactive particles uh, by going deep underground but they would not be sensitive to uh, dark matter that's more strongly interacting uh, for the same reason they're not sensitive to all of the the, the you know muons and other particles that are flying around at the surface of earth they wouldn't be sensitive to uh, dark matter that's strongly interacting because as it moves through this two kilometers of rock above these underground experiments it'll scatter against the elements in the earth and with each scattering it'll lose some of its energy uh, and I, I should clarify that uh, for the most part uh, you can think about any two body when when uh, a moving particle scatters against the non-moving particle the moving particle will always always come away from that uh, uh, bumping into each other with less energy than it had or, or moving slower than it was uh, initially whichever one was moving fast starts moving slower. That's exactly right. Yeah. That, and, and that is, that is always, always true. And, and uh, if you, if you have trouble believing that I would recommend playing around with some pool balls to convince yourself. Um, <laughs> this is the, this is the appeal of pool. I, 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 I we circled back around to that. I was working hard. I promise. Uh, and, so uh, the, <laughs> and, and maybe uh, we should also say that from a particle physics perspective, the earth, like most, like us and like most other things made up of regular matter are actually mostly empty space. Mm. So, it, so it is possible for these particles to move through the earth with little difficulty. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good, that's a really good point. Yeah. So the particles can, can move through supposedly solid material uh, in ways that uh, solid objects like you and me can't. Uh, there, there will be no running through walls for us, unfortunately. Uh, but a dark matter particle or uh, another kind of particle might have no trouble moving through uh, this wall. Uh, but in doing so, in moving through the wall, it may scatter off of the, the different elements in the wall, or in this case, the different elements in the earth. And so when it scatters, it loses energy. And by the time a dark matter particle would reach a detector that's two kilometers underground, it may have scattered enough that it's moving so slowly that the detector can't see it anymore. It's, it's not moving fast enough to leave a trace. Uh, the Earth is very large, and even though it's, uh, the, the space between atoms is large, there's a, the, the, the Earth is, it has a radius of about uh, 6,000 uh, kilometers. So there's a lot of material there that this dark matter particle might scatter against. Uh, and if it scatters enough, uh, it'll... Uh, become what's called gravitationally captured. Uh, so what that means is if you have a dark matter particle that doesn't scatter at all with the Earth and it's moving at, you know, about 300 kilometers per second, which is the, the typical speed for a dark matter particle moving through the Earth. If it, uh, if it leaves the Earth, if it goes through the Earth and leaves still moving at 300 kilometers per second, it's just going to fly off into space. It's going to ignore its gravity almost completely and just uh, 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 keep moving on its way. However, uh, if these scatterings uh, off of Earth's elements are able to slow this dark matter uh, to about a speed of 11 kilometers per second, which is still pretty fast, you know, that means that every second this dark matter particle would be moving 11 kilometers. Uh, but it's uh, even, even such a high speed is just slow enough uh, 
that Earth's gravity will take hold. And instead of just flying off into space, this dark matter particle would loop back around and fall towards Earth, much in the same way that when you jump up, you fall towards Earth because we are gravitationally bound to the Earth. Uh, so this dark matter particle would uh, 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 be stuck to the Earth because of its gravity. And this is sort of the, the main process in collecting enough dark matter at the Earth's core to form a black hole. Because uh, uh, over time, enough dark a, a lot of dark matter particles might become gravitationally bound to the Earth. Uh, and as they sort of orbit the Earth, as they, they fall through the Earth uh, in their orbits, uh, because they're gravitationally bound to the Earth, uh, they'll scatter against more elements. Uh, and over uh, a long period of time, they will uh, eventually settle in the core of the Earth. Uh, the, that's the, the, the happiest position for a dark matter particle to be because Earth's gravity is pulling everything towards the Earth's core. So over right. time, I mean, you get this accumulation. And we know that they like gravity. We know the that they like gravity. Know. Yes. So, uh, you know, we, we have no idea if dark matter is weakly interacting uh, or strongly interacting. Uh, some say that it doesn't interact at all, which would make it very hard to detect. Uh, but the one thing we do know is that it has mass. And we know this because the way we've observed it is, is its gravitational effects on galaxies and, uh, you know, other, other things. Uh, and so we, we can be very confident that it has mass and that it interacts with gravity. So we know that at least in, in theory, uh, a dark matter particle could become gravitationally bound to the Earth. Okay, so that actually raises my next question, which is, uh, sort of comes in two parts. And the first part is, when this dark matter is collecting at the center of the Earth, uh, won't the dark matter bump off the other dark matter and stop itself from collecting perfectly at the center? Ah, so the answer is yes, but probably not. Uh, so uh, in order to, we've, we've talked about, you know, uh, uh, strongly interacting dark matter, which is uh, what we're talking about here, but also weakly interacting dark matter. Uh, and to do this, we, we, we're, we're uh, being a, a little simplistic. So some uh, dark matter could be very strongly interacting with uh, regular matter but very weakly interacting with other dark matter particles. Uh, there's, uh, they're, 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 the, the two properties are, are very much decoupled. So you could have um, dark matter that's strongly interacting and weakly interacting uh, just for, uh, depending on what you're considering it interacting with. Uh, so uh, we did, uh, I should say my colleague Javier, who is uh, uh, working on this project with me, uh, did uh, a calculation to figure out, you know, how strongly attracting does dark matter need to be with other dark matter to really disrupt this process. And it turns out uh, it could be uh, extremely extreme. It would have to be uh, extremely, extremely strongly interacting with other dark matter uh, in order for uh, self-interactions, as they're called. Uh, to, to disrupt any of this. So uh, thankfully, th or uh, depending on your frame of reference, not thankfully, uh, strongly interacting dark matter with itself will not, uh, will not save uh, the Earth from being destroyed by a black hole. Okay, so, so for our purposes, these dark matter particles can be right on top of each other as far as they're concerned. Yeah, we, we, don't, have to, we don't have to worry about, uh, we don't have to worry about that. But then my, my other question is, as long as it's strongly interacting with regular matter, the center of the earth is quite hot. Won't that uh, start to, when, when at some point the dark matter will collide with these particles at the core of the earth and they'll actually get, get more energy instead of losing energy this time because now they're the slow thing. 
That's a that's a truly excellent question. I'm not sure. Did you did I did did I I, I not to not to break the illusion, but you have read the draft of the paper. Is that something that we talk about in the draft, or is that just a really good question you came up with? Um, well, I I was reading through the draft, and I, it just caught my eye that you had a profile for the density mm-hmm. of the of the Earth as a function of radius, and of course, there's also a profile for temperature. And I, I wondered at some point, the temperature might become a significant factor. You know, you're, listen, you're absolutely right. Uh, and the answer is uh, yes, but not in this case. And the, the reason for that, uh, I, I actually wrote a paper uh, where we had to treat this very, uh, in, in, in a, we, we had to take this uh, process really seriously. Uh, and uh, what could happen is that uh, there, are, there are these uh, molecules at the core of the earth, these iron molecules that are vibrating really, really quickly because they're really, really hot. The, the temperature at the core of the earth is about 5,000 degrees Celsius. So these things are moving really fast because they're really hot. And what could happen is that one of these vibrating uh, iron particles will bump up against a dark matter particle. Uh, and uh, in doing so, it'll give the dark matter particle some of its thermal energy, some of its vibrational energy, and uh, it could cause this dark matter to go flying off into space uh, because the iron particles are moving so quickly. Uh, The thing that's stopping that from happening in this case is the fact that we're considering very heavy dark matter. So uh, before we've we've been making a distinction between weakly interacting dark matter and strongly interacting dark matter, but there's another axis to this. There's another factor, and that's the mass of the dark matter particle. So if, uh, if the dark matter is uh, very light, then this process happens and uh, no black hole could possibly form at the center of the Earth. Uh, and I'm aware that light dark matter is a bit of an odd term, uh, but thankfully we're not considering that, we're considering heavy dark matter. Uh, and, and heavy dark matter, if it's bumped up against by this vibrating uh, iron molecule, will be heavy enough that even if it'll get a small amount of energy, it won't get that much because the, the iron molecule is so much lighter uh, than the dark matter. Uh, so uh, in this case, uh, such a process wouldn't happen, but in, in many, in, in other dark matter models, uh, that certainly would be something that you'd have to consider. Right, so this dark matter is big enough that um, even like those collisions are sort of tiny from its perspective. Exactly, yeah. it would be like a, a, a ping pong ball being thrown at a bowling ball, you know? The bowling ball might move a little if the ping pong ball is moving fast enough, but not enough to to really uh, uh, make a difference. It'll, it'll just, you know, give it a bit of a nudge. Okay, so, so we're pretty sure that in this type of, in this idea of dark matter, it's definitely going to, to some degree, settle in at the center of the earth. That's exactly right, yeah. And uh, once it does, is it always going, if it produces a black hole, will it always swallow up the earth or ah, see, yeah, yeah, yeah no so this is this is the this is the question that you have from from uh getting an advanced copy of the paper uh, <laughs> I, I see you connor I, I i see right through your little tricks so the answer is no so there there are two different scenarios that we have to consider uh in this work so the first is uh the case of this black hole destroying the earth or destroying the sun uh through this you know accumulation and then collapse into a black hole and uh, the, the, when we all think of a black hole, we think it's this destructive entity uh, that sucks in everything around it. Uh, and a lot of the time, the black holes that we see in the universe uh, are absolutely just that. Uh, and 
uh, we'll, I'll stick with that case for just a second before answering your question, if that's okay. Uh, so the, 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 the black hole, if, it's, if the black hole formed in the Earth uh, has this property that we all expect it to have, that it would you know, suck in the Earth and destroy it, uh, we would not be sitting here having this conversation. Uh, we would have been uh, 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 mercilessly sucked into the black hole. Uh, that has, again, as far as I can tell, not happened. Um, if you, you're welcome to prove me wrong, but it's a, I think that would be quite a hurdle. No, I'm pretty uh, sure I have, I have a second observation over here that the earth yeah, okay, not yeah, we, destroyed. I'm glad, I'm glad it's, it's always good when you, when, uh, results are reproducible in the world of science. Uh, so, uh, we've not been destroyed by a black hole and this means that we can create what's called an exclusion. So uh, that means we can say that dark matter particles that would form these destructive black holes at the center of the earth. Uh, uh, cannot exist. Dark matter still exists, but we know that it cannot have properties that would have caused the Earth to be destroyed by now. Seems reasonable uh, enough. Seems reasonable enough, I would hope. Uh, if, anyone, if anyone is confused by that concept, uh, you're welcome to contact me. Uh, but I think, I, think we're all, I think we all should be happy with that one. Uh, but because uh, dark matter has not destroyed the Earth, we create what's called an exclusion, uh, which means that we can rule out dark matter models uh, that would have these sorts of properties that would have destroyed the Earth because our observation does not match uh, uh, the, the prediction from the model that we've created. Uh, and these exclusions basically uh, tell us where dark matter isn't. We've, we've used the Earth in a way as a detector where the detection would be its destruction. Uh, and because it has not been destroyed, uh, we, we can exclude these dark matter models. Uh, and the utility in this is that uh, if someone uh, were to propose an experiment that they would want to detect dark matter uh, in this, with these sort of parameters that would cause it to destroy the Earth, we can save some time and some money by just saying, don't worry, no need looking there. We've already ruled out those sorts of uh, properties based on the fact that we're still here and not dead. Uh, so the, with, with this sort of world-destroying possibility, uh, which is where the paper gets its name, uh, we, we can create this exclusion. Uh, the second possibility, so now on to actually answering your question, uh, is that these black holes aren't actually uh, destructive. So uh, a black hole that's really, really big uh, is going to do what you expect it to. Uh, so a really heavy black hole is going to suck in everything around it uh, and behave as black holes tend to do in your mind. Uh, Stephen Hawking, actually, uh, his most notable work is, uh, it was in studying what might happen if black holes aren't super heavy. Uh, so a lighter black hole, a black hole that doesn't weigh as much, uh, would uh, undergo this process called evaporation. And it's through a process called Hawking radiation, which is Hawking's notable discovery. And what he said was that uh, all black holes uh, emit particles from their, what's called their event horizon. So the, the surface of the black hole has this sort of stream of particles flying from it. Uh, and uh, the, the, the intensity, the, the, the bigger a black hole is, the fewer particles there will be coming from the black hole. So the less energy uh, there will be from these particles being emitted from its surface. So a really heavy black hole, uh, they're, 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 the, the particles being emitted from its surface are so few and far between that this sort of process doesn't have much of an effect on it. But very light black holes would have uh, enough particles coming from its surface 
uh, that it, it actually would lose mass. And the reason for this is actually maybe a little intuitive, even though this whole process is completely absurd to think about. And that's that uh, any, any particle that's emitted from the surface of the black hole uh, necessarily must obey the laws of physics. It has to obey conservation of energy or conservation of mass. So that means that the mass of the particles that are emitted from the black hole necessarily needs to be uh, deducted from the mass of the black hole. So the, the, in other words, the mass of the black hole will decrease uh, by the same amount as the mass of the particles being emitted from it. So if the dark matter at the center of the Earth or the sun forms these black holes, but the black holes that it forms are light enough that they would be uh, releasing these particles at a high enough rate that they wouldn't grow and destroy the Earth, instead what would happen is they would just sort of shrink and disappear out of existence. Uh, and uh, it's these black holes that are actually maybe a little more interesting, uh, or certainly provide some more possibilities for us uh, uh, to think about, because the, the trail sort of stops at, you know, we haven't been destroyed by a black hole. So the, the, the destructive black holes are no, you don't really need to put much more thought into them. But these evaporating black holes are interesting because uh, essentially what we would be saying is that uh, there are black holes at the center, there may be black holes at the center of the earth that are formed by dark matter that would be releasing particles that are not dark matter into the into the, its surrounding area. So these particles would be things like electrons or neutrinos. And uh, from these, uh, we can actually do some interesting stuff. Uh, and in my opinion, the most interesting thing we can do is start to look for them. All right. And I think uh, looking for dark matter is a great place to pick up in our next segment. So let's go for a break and we'll be back soon. Hi, it's Nick again. While we're really proud of our content at the Queen's Observatory, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other great resources out there. If you just can't get enough of science, you should check out the McDonald Institute on Facebook and Twitter. They're dedicated to advancing astroparticle physics in Canada and have been a big supporter of the observatory. You can also look up your local branch of the Royal Astronomical Society. They can teach you how to get into astronomy from your own backyard. Finally, the Astronomy on Tap program is an excellent way to learn about astronomy in a more casual environment. Links to, links to the online programs for all the sources I mentioned will be in the podcast description. And with that, let's get back to this fascinating discussion on destruction of worlds through dark matter. And welcome back. So up now, we're going to talk a little bit about the future of this project and sort of some of the broader scope. And as we were discussing before the break, um, these black holes, the tiny ones, if they evaporate, they can release particles. And of course, electrons released in the center of the Earth would be captured by the Earth and essentially just heated up a little bit. But the neutrinos are free to fly through the Earth and then 10,000 other Earths after it, because neutrinos go through just about anything. Um, but we, we do have neutrino detectors. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about these neutrinos that come out of the black holes, are they really high energy or really low energy? Might they fit into the regions that we can detect with current or future experiments? Sure, yeah. So the, the, the answer to that is, uh, is, is uh, complicated. But in, no, short, it, in short, it depends. So the, it depends on how uh, big 
or, or how, how heavy or how light the black hole is. So uh, heavy black holes have different spectra than light black holes. I'm not, uh, the, I, I, should, I should say that the, the work that was done on this part of the project was predominantly done by uh, 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 someone working with us uh, in Geneva uh, named Toby. Uh, so Toby is, is more qualified to answer this than myself. But the, the short answer is, is that uh, there, there could be black holes that would release very, very high energy neutrinos and could be black holes that would release very low energy neutrinos. Uh, but what's what's in my opinion very interesting is what we would be interested in is uh, is sort of something in, in in between because neutrinos and I don't mean to I don't mean to contradict you here but the, the there's a there's an interesting property that neutrinos have which is that uh, what's called their cross section so basically how interactive they are depends on how much energy they have so a very very high energy neutrino would actually uh, have a lot of trouble. Uh, escaping the earth it would it would bounce around with the elements uh, inside the earth and end up doing some uh, it turns out very weird stuff uh, just like an electron emitted from the black hole would a very low energy neutrino uh, would be so low energy that it would be basically not interactive at all so it would just sort of fly out of the earth uh, and as you said through many other earths before anything uh, would even consider we, we would even start considering something happening with this neutrino uh, there are so so we would we would be looking for neutrinos that would be emitted from these black holes that would have sort of enough energy that they are detectable because first of all you need energy to be detectable, uh, but also enough energy that they might scatter with some sort of detector, but not too much energy uh, that they would just sort of be uh, 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 held on to uh, by the Earth. Uh, there's another interesting thing that uh, that I can only that I'll, I'll just I guess briefly mention, and that's that uh, there are these things called secondaries which are uh, when the neutrino, when a very high energy neutrino is escaping the black hole and scattering against stuff sort of in the vicinity of the black hole, it can create what's called secondaries. Uh, and what this means is that uh, the, the particles being emitted from the black hole could go through some weird quantum particle physics type processes with the stuff around the black hole and end up creating new particles completely. Uh, and it's these new particles that we then might want to be looking for. Uh, so there's a whole range of, of possibilities depending on what the, the spectrum is of the energy uh, of the particles coming from the black hole. All right. So there's, there's actually a whole bunch of different avenues to explore there, just, just depending on the nature of the dark matter. So it looks like um, future experiments will start to add more exclusions for you. In, uh, yes, in hopefully. different regions. Um, but then, uh, thinking bigger, what what sorts of other astronomical objects might asymmetric dark matter particles um, get into trouble with? What what other things are they going to interact with? Uh, so you can also be forming these black holes inside of stars, uh, and. Uh, what is interesting in particular about that, uh, at least for me, and this is at this point, wild speculation, someone could do some math and prove this idea completely wrong. Uh, but the, there's, a, there's a really interesting field of physics called helioseismology. Uh, and that looks at, it, 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 you, you take measurements and you literally look at the wobbling of the sun. And based on how the sun wobbles, uh, you can figure out what its composition is. Uh, and I, the fact that we can do that at all is mind-blowing to me. And it seems to work really, really well, which is insane. Um, but what's, what you might expect is that these black holes at the center of the sun, if they're evaporating, 
through exactly the same processes we've been talking about for the Earth, uh, this, this evaporation would, uh, first of all, possibly change the, the equilibrium of the sun's uh, sort of uh, being. And this might cause a, a wobble uh, the, the, the helioseismologists could detect. And uh, interestingly, you, also very interestingly, the, the, the current models for how our sun should be wobbling are a little bit off uh, from how the sun actually is wobbling. Oh, that's so very maybe exciting. it's very exciting. So, so maybe you could explain such a thing by these evaporating black holes. And do the evaporating black holes create like shock waves or just add heat? Is that it would. Uh, I, I would say that it's sort of a, you could think about it as a bit of both, but in, in either case, and I've, uh, I've again, not, not actually done any of this calculation. I'm not a stellar physicist. I mean, I hope I'm a stellar physicist, but I'm not a stellar physicist. Uh, and so the, yeah, yeah, you can, you can, you can cut that all out in post. I just, I saw the opportunity and I had to go for it, (laughs) but the, 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 that's a, that's a calculation for, for a, a physicist who is not myself to figure out uh, what actually would be important about that sort of process. Fair enough. I guess it's, it's a complicated calculation. Yeah. But I should, I should get back to your, your question about uh, outside of our solar system. Uh, and that's the, 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 there are uh, planets and stars everywhere. And in, in theory, this uh, work would actually be applicable to all of them. But uh, one particular case that might be of interest would be things like neutron stars and white dwarfs. So uh, for all you listening who, who may not be familiar, uh, these are uh, sort of uh, remnants of stars that have exploded uh, that are not quite black holes, but they're close. They're, they're extremely dense uh, and extremely heavy. And the, the, they're fairly small, but the, they're, they're, you know, the material in these things is packed in uh, really, really close. And so you might expect uh, that these things wouldn't exist at all uh, because of this sort of process. You know, the, these, these extremely dense and heavy things would be much better at capturing dark matter than something like the Earth or the Sun. Uh, and therefore, they should be, uh, they, you know, if we see them at all, surely that's a, a better thing to be considering than the Earth and the Sun. Uh, and the, the factor that, we're, that you need to consider in order to uh, think about white dwarfs and neutron stars is their temperature. So you actually sort of alluded to this, which is, uh, uh, you know, a very hot particle at the center of the Earth might uh, give some energy to a dark matter particle and disrupt this whole process. Uh, and uh, the temperatures inside of white dwarfs and neutron stars are so high that they actually do. Uh, and it's, it's not enough to disrupt it to the point of, you know, there cannot be a black hole forming, but they're so hot that it becomes harder for a black hole to form. You need to accumulate more dark matter. Uh, and it turns out that through this complicated calculus of, um, uh, you know, dark matter mass uh, and, and uh, uh, um, stellar body temperature and stellar body density and all these things, uh, it actually ends up being that rocky planets such as the Earth end up becoming very, very good for this sort of analysis, basically the best type of planet for this analysis. The Goldilocks thing to be destroyed by dark matter. Yeah, exactly. We are in, we are in the Goldilocks zone in more than one respect, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, there's another interesting thing that you could consider, though, and that's that you know, when, you cons- when you think about a star going supernova, a star dying and possibly turning into a black hole, uh, what first needs to happen is that a lot of its material needs to be blown away from it. Uh, it doesn't just, you know, become a black hole 
it, it, it has to undergo this, this really violent supernova first where it's gonna lose a lot of its mass. Uh, in this case though, this would be a process by which a very heavy star could turn into a black hole without losing very much of its mass at all. It would just sort of be sucked up from the inside. So the, the mass of the resulting black hole should be about the same as the mass of the star was uh, before it you know, got sucked in. Uh, and so you can start thinking about what sort of black hole masses might we be looking for to see the, the remnants of other stars that have been destroyed by black holes maybe uh, in the past. This seems like a connection to our last podcast, which was talking about intermediate mass black holes and the mystery of how supermassive black holes appear so early in our universe. You're right. It, and I'm, I'm happy that uh, that podcast preceded this one because it makes my, my life a lot easier. And I, I, this is, a, and I should, I should be clear that this is at this point very broad speculation. This is not, uh, again, any math that I've done or that I think anyone on this project has done. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're speculating about how this could be sort of applied, this is definitely a, an avenue that you might consider. Well, as long as I've got you broadly speculating... Let's, let's go as broad as we can and try to, can, can you tell me a little bit about how such a strongly interacting dark matter model might look different on the largest scales? Because right now we run our simulations of the whole universe, assuming that dark matter doesn't interact with regular matter at all. And we, we do a pretty good job uh, in these simulations of recovering what we see in the universe but you're, you're turning a knob that sort of changes how that dark matter would behave in these simulations. Mm. And so I wonder uh, if, you've, if you've done any speculating on that, maybe not if, any math yet. <laughs> so definitely not any math, but if you wanna, if you wanna do some, some gross speculation, I, I'm, I'm happy to try. Uh, and the, the answer that I would give is uh, it, would, it could behave, it, it could result in basically exactly the same sort of structures that we see today. But in order to do that, you would need to different, you have different restrictions on how interactive the dark matter is. So uh, if you think about, th this might be a, a, a difficult metaphor to really think about, but if you think about a very heavy uh, object bumping into a very light object, um, the, the, the heavy object is, is the, isn't gonna change its speed or trajectory very much at all after bumping into this very light object. It's like a bowling ball going by and you throw a ping pong at it. Yeah, it's not, nothing's really going to happen. And it, the ping pong ball would change direction, certainly. But the speed of the ping pong ball after hitting the bowling ball is going to be basically the same as it was before you threw it. Uh, does that, are, we, are, are, we, are we following so far? I'm, I'm starting to see. So that would, that would mean that the observations we've made of the early universe that are things like temperature and general distribution, those aren't, aren't going to change because there's no exchange of energy. That's exactly time. right. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, so you can, you can actually start the, the, the most strict uh, restriction on dark matter comes in when the mass of the dark matter is about the same as the mass of the, the, the regular matter that we see around us. And if you get much lighter then the dark matter has a lot of trouble uh, causing any sort of uh, observable effect through scattering uh, of the regular matter. Uh, but the, 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 the heavier you get, you experience the same thing where you don't really actually see much of a difference uh, when this dark matter scatters against the regular matter. So uh, we are 
we are uh, so heavy at this point, we're, we're considering dark matter, it's heavy enough that this sort of scattering is, is, is uh, you don't really need to think about it because it doesn't really change much. All right, so you saved yourself there. <laughs> yeah, whew. I, I'm, I'm still employed as far as I can tell, uh, at least until this podcast comes out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and well, so now, now I think we've sort of gone as big as we can go. I don't think we can move past the size of the universe. Yeah, so it would be impressive. To, to close off our discussion about this, this dark matter model and dark matter models in general, perhaps you could answer the, the ultimate question for a scientist. Um, who cares? Who cares about all of this research here? Uh, so that is a, it's a, it's a it's a hard question to answer, uh, but uh, it, it, to 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 answer it, I, I think the most effectively, uh, you can think about uh, the electron. Uh, so I think that you and I and and just about anybody listening to this podcast can agree that the electron has been a very important particle for humanity. Uh, the very fact that this podcast exists uh, is contingent upon our understanding of the electron. Uh, if 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 we didn't understand the electron, none of our technology would be where it is. We, we wouldn't be able to, to create uh, this, this wonderful world that we have uh, before us. Uh, so I think we can all agree uh, that electrons are important and we, we're, um, uh, we can all be very happy that electrons were studied in the way that they were. Uh, one person who did not think that electrons would be particularly important was J.J. Thompson, the, uh, the, the supposed discoverer of the electron. Uh, he and his lab used to do a toast to the electron. They would raise their glasses and they would say, to the electron, may it never be of use to anybody. Uh, because at the time they looked at this tiny subatomic particle and they said, this thing is very light. It's very small. It has a very small electric charge. Who could possibly benefit from this particle? Uh, and how wrong they were. In, in the same vein, actually, uh, uh, Michael Faraday, the, the, one of the, the credit as one of the grandfathers of modern electricity, uh, in his lab would be building these sort of rudimentary electric circuits. Uh, and he was funded by government research or a, a government grant. And at one point, a government official is supposed to have uh, uh, come in to, to visit him to see what the taxpayer money is going to. Uh, and he said, uh, oh, you know, look at all the, so you're able to, you know, move this dial when you connect these wires. Who cares? What's the point of this? And Faraday's response was, I don't know, sir, but one day you may tax it. Uh, and today, <laughs> electricity is, of course, a, a, a taxable uh, a commodity. So uh, the, the short answer is that nobody knows uh, how dark matter research might help humanity, if at all. Uh, but if we don't study it, we'll never know. Uh, and even though its applications may not seem uh, uh, particularly self-evident at the moment, uh, neither did the utility of the electron or the utility of electricity at all. Uh, so uh, the, the hope of uh, particle physicists and fundamental physicists is that uh, one day uh, someone can use these, this sort of uh, research and, and, and discoveries that we know about this particle for something that will benefit humanity, but uh, we just can't know what it is. I guess that's really the benefit for all fundamental science is not the improvements you expect, but the ones that completely change the game altogether. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The, uh, so uh, without, without uh, self-aggrandizing too much, uh, hopefully uh, dark matter will, will, will help people, but who's to say how? <laughs> all right. And I, I think that closes off everything I 
wanted to discuss about this subject for today. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you at the next podcast. Best wishes. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Queen's Observatory's Fast Radio Burst. We hope you enjoyed this walk through the universe. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact us via email at queensuobservatory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter as the Queen's University Observatory to stay up to date. If you like this podcast, you can help us by leaving a review and sharing it with your friends. This will help us become more visible and spread the wonders of the universe to more people. That is all from us. We'll be back again with another exciting topic in astronomy.